Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai. My guest today has an incredibly interesting blend of academic, government, and clinical experience. I'm going to let him choose his own career highlights in a moment, but I'm going to start by telling you that Dr. Desik Emanuel is currently Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Co-Director of the Healthcare Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, where he's also a university professor. He's also a special advisor to the Director General of the WHO, the World Health Organization. You know, he spent many years at the National Institutes of Health and was a special advisor on health policy in the Obama administration. He's one of the leading authorities in the U.S. on healthcare reform. And I'm very excited and looking forward to getting his thoughts on where the healthcare system stands after absorbing what we hope is the worst of COVID-19. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a great privilege. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So let's get started. What first got you excited about medicine? Take me back to that day when you started thinking about it and uh, and decided that that would be a career path for you. Uh, I don't know that I decided that so much as my parents decided that. I am the eldest born of an immigrant father who himself happened to be a doctor. And I also happened to be both good in school and good in science and math. And I think, therefore, it was overdetermined that I should become a doctor. And I will be honest that all the way through college, I was looking for ways to not become and go into medicine. I even after college went to Oxford for two years to do biochemistry research, thinking that maybe I'd go into the lab. And that failed. I went to medical school my first year. I wasn't very happy about it. It seemed like a lot of rote memorization. Some of it was enormously fun. I actually loved anatomy, for example. But I spent that first summer between uh, the first year of medical school and the second year of medical school actually being a journalist at the then New Republic uh, in Washington, D.C. I didn't actually like being a journalist that much, but I didn't have a plan B. So I returned to medical school. Uh, So I would say I'm a reluctant doctor. It's been very good to me. And the issues and policy questions I've gotten involved with have been I hope I've been able to contribute to the good of the country. It's funny how your career goes, never what you predict necessarily. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Oftentimes we hear kind of the positives of medicine and you mentioned journalism as well. I'd really like to understand from your perspective, maybe at that time, maybe it's shifted over time, but when you're weighing the decision of going into medicine, even when you were a medical student, what were the things that were negatives? Like what what didn't fit your personality and your your lifestyle and your interests at the time? Well, it wasn't a matter of lifestyle. I mean, my, if there's anything my dad imparted to his children, it's like working 24 hours a day. It was like normal. I would say that my father and I have different personality in the following sense. My dad loved people. Just understanding people was what really drove him. And we used to joke, my brothers and I, we still joke, you know, we would take a road trip or go on travel and we would be sitting down to dinner in a restaurant. And literally within five minutes, my dad would be talking to the people next to us. And within 20 minutes, we would be invited to their house for dinner if we were in some foreign country. And he, he just loved it. He, he was not the kind of person who thought about uh, cosmic issues, how many stars are there, is there, you know, extraterrestrial life. He couldn't care about that at all. People and intersecting with people and seeing how people worked and, and just loving people was what really drove him. That's different from me. I'm interested in making an impact. He was interested in making an impact and caring for individual people. And he could remember names of 
patience he had from 20, 30 years before. You know, I like policy and, you know, my brother likes policy. We like to do policy that'll affect tens of thousands, uh, if not millions of people. And I think it's just a personality difference. I'm an ethicist. I deal with abstract concepts and try to see how they apply to the world. So I, I just think that's the difference in personality. And I think that element of trying to bring justice into the world, you know, I got that probably more from my mom. That's really interesting. It's, it's very obvious, even within a minute of talking to you, that your parents have influenced you tremendously. You've cited them a couple of times. I'm curious, what was your father's take or maybe your mother's take on your decision after you had your medical degree to go on and get your PhD in political philosophy? What did they think of that? Well, it, it, <laughs> two things. It wasn't after. I actually stopped medical school in my third, after my third year, my first clinical year, Fortunately, at Harvard, all you needed was 15 months of clinical stuff to graduate. I got exactly 15 months. And my father, you know, he didn't understand. He thought, look, you did this immunology research. It got lots of good publications out of it. In a few years at Oxford, I got three publications in, oh, wow. in some pretty big journals, uh, including Nature. And it's like, what is this bioethics stuff? There's no bioethics. He just couldn't get it. He wasn't going to say no to me by that time I was, you know, an adult married and I had a kid, but he was also befuddled by it. On the other hand, I will give him credit when I began explaining what I was interested in and what, what issues I was addressing and thinking about, he did appreciate their importance for medicine. And then as I got a little more, uh, you might say, established with my first article in a big medical journal, he's like, oh, <laughs> maybe there's something here. And by the end of his life, he was incredibly, incredibly uh, proud. But I would say that each of his kids befuddled him a little bit. You know, it's like me becoming a doctor, but going into this medical ethics thing. It's like, but when he was coming up in the 50s, there was no medical ethics. Rahm didn't become a lawyer, became a politician. It's like, what's that about? Um, and then he went to work for, uh, you know, as the fundraising chair for Clinton in 1991, before anyone had heard of who Bill Clinton was. And my dad was like, are you crazy? What, you're throwing away your life. And then when my younger brother goes from an established talent agency to start his own, with zero money and three partners, my dad thought he had just committed himself to a loony bid. It was like, what's happened in LA? I don't understand this. Um, fortunately, his children did not take his advice very seriously. Well, you're, so your father's an interesting character and can kind of be an interesting straw man for us because I think his perspective <laughs> is not far off of a lot of parents' perspective. I mean, honestly, you know, I grew up with immigrant parents as well. And if I did any of the things that you just described, my parents would have responded very similarly. And so I'm just curious, what was his take on medical ethics specifically? And then what turned his mind? And, and I'm curious whether that, whether you've noticed that turning other people's minds as well as time has gone on. <laughs> you know, like all parents, they want their kids to be happy and succeed. It's, it's really that, that simple. I think my father, God bless him, had very traditional notions. He was raised in Israel, went to medical school right after the war in Switzerland. He saw the devastation of Europe. He liked certain things. His idea of succeeding was, you know, moving to the American suburbs and having two cars. That's really his idea. He didn't go to college in the United States. He didn't understand what a kid in the United States, the opportunities really of kids in the United States. I think he was in that regard, cautious and conservative. I, on the other hand, you know, early on realized you go to a, a really good school 
And, you know, unless you commit murder or you're uh, dealing in drugs, you're going to succeed. You've got the contacts. You're a smart person. You, you've already succeeded. And the way American society is structured, it's hard to really fail. You'll always land on your feet. And I hope when I've raised my kids, they're now older and have their own kids. You know, it's like I have a views about what you should do. But I'm not going to impose. I'm going to tell you what I think, but I'm not going to impose them and I'm going to support what you do. I think I was a little more supportive than he was about doing something a little different. Feel free not to answer this question, but I'm just curious. <laughs> do your kids ever befuddle you with their choices? And what is that experience like, given what you just said about your father? Well, uh, well, first of all, I, I think I'm very proud of my kids because none of them have done what I've done. <laughs> there are no doctors, <laughs> certainly no political philosophers, no bioethicists. They have pursued their own. So one is working at the Harvard iLab and thinking about climate change and student startups. One is a journalist working at NPR. And one just finished her economics PhD and is doing a postdoc this coming year at Princeton. And, you know, they're doing very different things. I will also say I'm a very urban guy. I live in a city here in Washington. I have a house in the city in Philadelphia. I can't imagine living in the suburbs. My kids all want to be on farms. <laughs> I was like, ah, I don't know where this came from. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not totally supportive. So I, I hope I've learned the lesson of, you know, I've got my life, but you've got your life. I will tell you what I think, but I'm happy to be wrong and you, you do your own thing. That's awesome. That sounds like a, a wonderful philosophy for any parent. You know, I'm curious, you've had an amazing career, and I, I'd love to learn a little bit from your perspective. What were some key lessons from your experiences that influenced your current role, uh, roles, I should say, at University of Pennsylvania? <laughs> well, I would say first, I think my career has always been based upon the notion, it hasn't been strategic. I'm not a strategic thinker, you know, where should I be? Who should I, my allies be? I can't do that. I do what interests me at the moment. And I think, uh, let me just say two things. The first is I'm almost always, and again, this I do trace to my father and my mother, both of them is a little uh, contrarian, mm -hmm. uh, you might say, which is if the conventional wisdom is X, I am going to see not X has to be right in some way mm -hmm. and X is wrong. And that often means I'm pushing against the establishment. So when I decided to take time off and do this political philosophy thing and, and work on end-of-life care. That was, I was going to look at political philosophy and end-of-life care and how the controversy we were having in the United States about end-of-life care and also allocation of resources really tied to something deeper in American culture and values. The dean of students at Harvard Medical School says, well, you know, we're not going to stop you, but we think this is a career render. People don't go into, there's no end-of-life care research in American medicine. This is the early 80s. You know, and I'm like, oh, I think it's important. I think it will be important. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not going to listen to you. And you tell me who's right. Uh, when 25% of uh, Medicare spending is on people in their last year of life, I think I won that argument hands down. And almost all of my positions over the years are, if this is conventional wisdom, it's really not quite right. And let me tell you the alternative view, and I'll give you why my alternative view is right. And I think that contrarian position you know, sometimes it lands you in hot water, but I think mostly I've been on the right side of things, beginning with end-of-life care and then moving into various areas that I have, I think, contributed to successfully. The other thing I think I've figured out is try to look five years ahead. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the current controversy, I am heavily involved in COVID, but try to figure out what is the issue in five years and try to solve it today. And then it'll catch up with you. And also I'll give you an example. Beginning in 2005, the Department of HHS looked at uh, influenza and what would happen if we had a major influenza pandemic and mm-hmm. medical resources. And they had a policy about how to allocate scarce medical resources mainly to the elderly. And I came out of the first presentation of that. And I was like, that view is wrong. And I happened to say it to a guy standing next to me who is a colleague of mine in the Department of Bioethics at the NIH. And we wrote a paper in science about why it's wrong. And then we spent the next four years figuring out what's the general theory. Mm -hmm. And we wrote a paper in the Lancet about a general theory for allocating very scarce medical resources like organs for transplantation. Mm -hmm. Along comes COVID. And from 2009 to 2020, I hadn't written anything on, or that's not quite true, but I hadn't written a lot on allocation. Mm -hmm. And then here's COVID. And literally, I'm flying back from Norway on March 11th or 12th, Mm -hmm. 2020. Everyone's talking about we're not going to have enough Mm -hmm. ventilators in New York. How are we going to allocate ventilators? And on the plane, I write the draft of an article that we end up publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine about allocation using a framework we had developed 11 years before and showing how that framework was really general and really could solve this problem. And I think that framework's been influential. And then we began to apply similar concepts to allocating vaccines among Mm -hmm. countries. So I think trying to anticipate what our problems and trying to solve them that's been an, an approach I like to say has fueled my career. And I've been very lucky that the things I've worked on have come to fruition, whether it's research ethics and revising the federal guidelines or it's end of life care or it's allocation. I've, I've heard the quote, luck is the residue of design. And based on what you just <laughs> said, I'm curious to know what you're working on right now so that I can quickly jump on board so that I also am catching the train in five years. You know, one of the things that um, stands out is your contrarian viewpoint. It's very interesting. And I think it leads to kind of a robust debate, if, if nothing else, right? Regardless of whether you're right or wrong, it sharpens everyone uh, and everyone's views. What, what do you think is some conventional wisdom you've heard, maybe shared by WHO or CDC or whoever, that you take a contrarian viewpoint on, whatever it might be? Is there an example of that? And if not, we can think of other common conventions, but I'm just curious, given that we're in the middle of COVID, uh, what you've heard that you might take maybe a slightly different tack on. Ah, that's an interesting, uh, well, you know, one of the things we have been, I would say at loggerheads on related to COVID is how the WHO and COVAX are allocating vaccine among countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, the framework we developed is very different from theirs. They focus on distributed, they play fairly, but equally each country gets a certain amount based on its population. And our argument is, no, you have to allocate on the basis of what we call COVID need. And that is on the basis of things related to the number of people dying, both directly and indirectly because of COVID, the economic impacts and dislocations, that that's the ethical approach. And I think I'm right. And I think their position is not even close to ethical. I don't think there's a single ethical principle that can really justify their position. So I think that's an important distinction and difference. Dr. Bill Fagey, who I know you know, has written a book oh, yeah. called House on Fire, and he talks about very brilliantly analogizes it to fighting a, a fire and says, you know, you direct the water to the burning house, not the neighboring homes. And so it sounds yeah. like there is a, a kind of analogy. Yeah, to what you're absolutely. Describing. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So what do you think are some of the most encouraging developments, just to flip it around, uh, in healthcare broadly, like you said, like thinking five, 10 years down the road, that have maybe come out of COVID or accelerated by COVID uh, that otherwise may not have in the counterfactual uh, coming to being so, so quickly? Well, look, I think the mRNA as a therapy, Penn hasn't been in the center of this, but people have been thinking about mRNA as therapies, but they've been running into walls and walls and walls. And suddenly, far and away, the most effective vaccine with the fewest side effects is the mRNA vaccines. That's just going to open up a huge, huge number of research avenues, I think, and it's going to be incredibly powerful intervention. And I don't think we have the foggiest idea where it's going to uh, land. I think this issue of allocating resources mm -hmm. and the absolute scarcity of resources that we can't satisfy 7.8 billion people and how to figure what the primary stuff is, I, I think that's also going to be with us for a very, very long time. So I, I think those are two really big issues. There's been a lot of discussion before COVID around value-based care and how to restructure payments to direct them against value versus yeah. just the way that it was done previously was just in many cases based on nothing, but or, you know, based on sort of opinion and things like that. Do you think that COVID has set back reform efforts uh, towards value-based care or accelerated them? I don't think it's COVID. I think COVID has accelerated telemedicine, although we're falling back because the payment hasn't Come picked through. up. What I say now is I don't think the administration is going to invest a lot in traditional health policy, just not on their agenda. And you can see the various bills they've introduced. Healthcare policy is not at the top, and I don't think they're going to do a lot there. And that leaves it to the private sector for the next four years. And I think the good news, in my opinion, is lots and lots of super smart people coming into healthcare, realizing there's just a ton of money here uh, to be had if we can solve some of these problems. Some of those problems will be solved, I think, very effectively by the private sector. I think creating a coherent structure to the healthcare system and using some of those solutions systematically and effectively is going to require some government policy. When those two arrive together, I don't know. And that's, I think, the big and maybe scary part about it is they have to come together if they're going to be effective. The positives, I think, are we got more smart people in healthcare and health policy than we've ever had before. And I think that will help us develop a lot of solutions. So thank you for segueing for me around smart people. You're about to make us smarter because we're a teaching company and we love to educate ourselves, fill in knowledge gaps, maybe dispel myths. You're a teacher at heart. Uh, you, you've taught in many classrooms. Oh, yeah. Is there something that you can share with our audience? Maybe a common misunderstanding, something that maybe you struggled with back in the day or, or have a, a solid understanding now that could help fill a knowledge gap for us on any topic of your choice? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to start off in left field for you, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to bring it down to hopefully something, probably what you intended. Uh, last spring, I finished uh, teaching a course on Ben Franklin. Okay. And uh, I say that Ben Franklin is the most brilliant person ever born in the North American continent, bar really? none. Everything Ben Franklin touched, everything minus his personal life, he was world-class in. He was a world-class printer. He was a world-class journalist, a world-class writer, world-class inventor, world-class scientist. He won the equivalent of the Nobel Prize at that time, the Copley Medal. He was a world-class diplomat, a world-class politician, and we could go on. There's no person who's been as wide and as excelled 
And I think the thing that drove him, I mean, his last published essay was three weeks before he died. And it was against slavery. It was making wow. fun of slave owners wow. and, and, and uh, just, you know, poking at all their myths that were good for slaves, yeah, or yeah. what's going to happen to the economy if we freed the slave. What drove him and what made him so amazing was his endless curiosity. And he thought deeply about everything. If it didn't make sense, he spent a lot of time thinking about it. Huh. Um, he changed his opinions. Uh, he evolved. And slavery is a good example of his evolution. In any case, we can learn a lot from his life. He is the most brilliant person, and you can learn a lot by, by studying Ben Franklin. But I think one of the things that we can learn today, I think, is what are the biggest impediments to healthcare reform? And I think one of them is the complexity of the system. We just have by far the most complex healthcare system in the world. There's many sources of the complexity, but one of the sources of that complexity is employer-sponsored insurance, where each employer decides they need a different, slightly different package. That slightly different package adds nothing to the health of their employees, doesn't control costs, and adds a lot of money to the administrative costs of hospitals and doctors who have to keep track of all these different plans and payers yeah. who have thousands of small variations. And that is very, very costly. You know, we spend various estimates, but certainly north of $500 billion on administration of uh, health insurance and stuff. And a lot of it is because of these very small differences employers make that make no difference. If we standardize the package, here are 10 different packages. You have to choose one of the 10. And those were standardized for consistency. We would save a lot of administrative costs. And it's a win-win. The only people who lose from that are the uh, health benefit consultants. So it begs a quick follow-up, which is what, what do you see as the biggest roadblock to executing this obviously very clear uh, roadmap? Getting all the employers on the same page and for them to stop thinking that they're going to have some advantage, whether it's a cost advantage, a competitive advantage, or anything. And the government did it for Medicaid or supplemental benefits, mm -hmm. should do it for the employer-sponsored part. It would make a huge difference. So I'll ask one final question here then. Uh, we obviously have a lot of students, I alluded to that, early career health professionals in our audience. They look at a career like yours, they hear your story, say, hey, I can relate on this level. But on the flip side, how in the heck do I get to his storied career if, if that's something I aspire to? What, what advice would you give to a person? First of all, when I was uh, <laughs> in uh, medical school, when I was an intern and resident, there was no storied career. I was slogging away like everyone else. And the important thing is to slog away and to slog away at something that you are passionate about and you think is important. And you can tell me why it's going to be important in healthcare. For me, it was end of life care initially. And then it became the physician patient relationship, the um, you know, research ethics, because I switched jobs to the NIH and then allocation and health policy. But you know, find something you think is important to the healthcare system and become an expert in that. There's no substitute for that. I am now an old man. And I've been at this game for more than 30 years. It's not like suddenly I just appeared. I mean, there are some people who, you know, right out of the box, they're obviously geniuses and can figure out how to both be great researchers and public intellectuals about healthcare. But that didn't happen for me. I had to slog at it. And keeping focus on doing good research, coming up with new ideas, publishing in the best places is the best way to gain influence.
That's phenomenal. I also want to uh, let you know that I'll be uh, reading Ben Franklin's biography. So thank you for that. Yes, yes. The H.W. Brand's biography. There's also a good one called Young Ben Franklin, which only takes him up to when he retires. So this is another thing. Ben Franklin invented retirement at the age of 42. He was going to devote himself for the rest of his life to science. Well, he devoted a few years to science when he won the Copley Medal for electricity and, and lightning and the lightning rod and all. But then he got taken up with politics and diplomacy and all of that. But the young Ben Franklin is a very good biography. It gives you a real sense for the uh, early 1700s and, and the kind of thing that Ben Franklin had to do as a young man. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And, and I can obviously sense a lot of his curiosity in you uh, as well. And so thank you for sharing. Uh, well, thank you very much. Well, listen, I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>